1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Who have we got on today?
2: Oh, it's a good one today. We're back to archaeology today. Um, We have Terence Christian with us, who is a conflict archaeologist and military historian specialising in post medieval conflict. Uh, He's currently on the faculty at Temple University in Philadelphia, but he also works with the National Park Service and the Defence POW MIA Accounting Agency. So, welcome, Terence.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here.
2: How is lockdown?
0: Long. (laughs) Um, I I foolishly thought this was going to last maybe one, two weeks, and so I left a lot of my stuff in my office. And uh, yeah, you don't really realize how much you miss a library until you physically can't get to it.
2: Are you now like, you're not allowed to even go and grab stuff? Are you completely locked out?
0: Yeah, so um, we're kind of in a weird situation because we take public transport to get to the university. And uh, so that's kind of uh, a weird, dicey uh, situation where the university doesn't want to introduce any kind of external um, variables, and so uh, they don't really want us to take public transport. Um, and then on top of that, my wife works uh, on uh, on ships doing expeditions, so um, she came back and, uh, and put us in quarantine for two weeks anyways, because so, um, all the maritime people had to go into quarantine, so...
2: Yeah, at the other end of the spectrum. So I've been reading that apparently in Nigeria, more people have been killed by people enforcing lockdown than have actually been killed by the virus. And Turkmenistan have gone all out. They have apparently banned the name of the virus. You're not allowed to talk about it anywhere. Um, you're not allowed to talk about it on TV. The media aren't allowed to mention it. And if you're seen with a mask or whatever, you can be like arrested for disturbing the peace. So they're going down the whole sticking their fingers in their ears and going la 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 route. Well, let's talk about your subject let's get into um some questions Alina start us off
1: oh conflict archaeology I love a bit of conflict archaeology um first of all how big of a field is it and how did you uh, how did you actually get into it
0: oh really good question the, the the size of the field I think that shifts uh pretty much yearly it grows um so when it first started out um, in roughly the mid-90s, it, it varies, uh, China started in a kind of isolation. Uh, the main core group started in, in the UK and Europe about the same time, and they're kind of now merging together as, as more contact is made. Um, but when it started out, it was, it was quite small. There was only one program really at Glasgow University, which is where I went, um, and that was under Ian Banks and Tony Pollard, who are still, still there. Um, and it, it grew, in, and I'd say we're now in, in a couple hundred. Um, we may have cracked the couple thousand. It depends on conference location, but uh, the core kind of cohort that practices it professionally is in the couple hundred. Um, and, and we all come to it in different ways. There's military historians that come to it because they want to practice physical history, as they call it, and we remind them that that's just archaeology. Um, <laughs> and then uh, n- nothing gets to my mom's split brain as well, military history and conflict archaeology. Um, but then, then there's others that come to it from, from a variety of ways. We've got uh, ex-soldiers who come to it because they're fascinated by military history and want to learn more about the actual tactics and terrain. Um, we have people that are interested in material culture. So uh, a dear friend uh, who, who lives in Glasgow, she works um, on kind of homewares and how conflict arises on things like teapots. Um, so we all kind of come to it different ways. I came to it through an equally weird way. I used to be a prehistorian. We joked that half the field are recovering prehistorians. And, uh, I came to it because I wrote a paper that, um, that most of the, the citations, uh, were actually Tony Pollard, me and Ian Banks and did the, the classic Google search or at that point probably asked Jeeves and, yes. uh, and said, <laughs> you know, oh, who are these guys over here and, and applied and, you know, uh, the rest is history. I had a choice between there and university of Chicago and, uh, and went to Glasgow and, um, you know, as much as I like Chicago and the cold weather there, I'm really glad that I went to, to Glasgow. <laughs> it's, uh, Probably the only the person who better.
2: went to uni in Glasgow um, because it was warmer than your other option.
0: Well, you know, and, the, and Chicago was actually for a, for a totally different one. That was actually, um, I was at that point toying with, uh, I used to teach Russian language and, and do Russian history. And, um, so I was toying with the idea of doing Russian statehood, um, still conflict, but early Russian statehood, medieval, um, Fourth Crusade and uh and so that would have seen me gone to the the kind of steps of, of russia which i think yeah it's a choice between really cold russia really cold chicago or damp and cold glasgow um i really so should have looked you, into, like if, the if you
1: were closer to russia you know you could have come over for a cup of tea you know we could have had a chat about a bit of conflict archaeology see what you've missed out
2: on
0: oh, we would have you been really were, close you yeah, weren't in been poland in, at that uh,
2: time
1: no, no that's also true I mean only now but you know still nevertheless depends on where in Russia as well depends on where
2: in Russia. Can you give us a broad um, overview for people who aren't familiar of what conflict or archaeology is what's the definition?
0: Sure uh, so, so it's widened when I said it started in the 90s we really started as battlefield archaeology that was our, our core focus um, and that was really kind of I mean, the trope is counting musket balls. We, uh, we'd sit there and we'd try and, try and find firing lines and count casualties and try and find uh, burial pits and really define the, the actual landscape of battlefields and it's widened from them. Um, so now we look at it as, my, my definition that I use comes from, from what we define with the U.S. government and it's really looking at um, individual or state actors who are part of a political conflict that's expressed in physical violence. Um, and that can vary in in many different ways. You can have the classic battlefield archaeology. You can have World War II in the Pacific, um, but you can also have, going back to the teapots, you can also have, for instance, the Highland Clearances uh, after 1745, where you have the the British government troops uh, coming up and physically removing what they see as this sort of insurgency uh, in the Highlands that are their Jacobean sympathizers, and so that conflict, that state actor moves into the home front. It's not a battlefield, but it's, it's at the home, And then likewise, if you go to Poland and you look at like the Warsaw Uprising, you know, you wouldn't consider the Warsaw Uprising necessarily to be state actors, um, but it's certainly a state actors against individuals with a political goal uh, that's expressed in physical violence. Um, And that's how I would distill it down. Um, It makes it wide enough to be applicable to everything and uh, and as clear as mud that we can get away with a lot.
2: (laughs) So uh, let's talk about um, some of your favorite excavations that you've been part of. Tell us about the Maid of Harlech.
0: So the Maid of Harlech, um, this is one that uh, that I haven't been part of personally. I've I've kind of watched it on the uh, the sidelines um, with uh, with bated breath. The Maid of Harlech is uh, is a P thirty eight F Lightning, um, which uh, which came down in Wales. And um, what's incredible about it is it's been known about for some time. Um, it, uh, it it came down September twenty seventh, nineteen forty two, and it was flown by um, Second Lieutenant Robert Elliott, who's twenty four. He's quite young. Um, in our thinking, but quite old for for the war. But uh, he was out on a practice mission. It's one of the reasons I like it. Is is a lot of what I deal with is training missions or, or ferry flights. They're these large numbers of crew that are on these uh, these far flung regions of the war that aren't necessarily attacked, uh, but go down. And because they're not part of a combat operation, are are generally seen in the in history as I don't want to say second fiddle, but uh, but you know they they take kind of a backseat to the war bonds and to the, to the great sort of military triumphs of, uh, uh, of the war. Um, and this one came down on the coast of Wales uh, near, near Harlech, hence its name. It's not actually the name of the aircraft. It's just sort of what it's been given. And it's in the intertidal zone. So it appears through the sand every so often. And, uh, and it shows this sort of ghostly shell as the, as the aluminum corroded. But what's really incredible about it is that it survives. And it was subject to a survey left without excavation because it excavates itself every so often. Um, but in 2019, it became the first scheduled nationally protected wreck site in the UK, um, and and I would contend one of the only uh, internationally protected, truly in the broadest legal definition, uh, protected sites um, worldwide. So it's a really, really new piece of of archaeology uh, with respect to. Uh, historic preservation but it's a really old piece of archaeology with respect to second world war aviation history and it becomes this this symbol this piece of nose art for the entire aviation archaeology discipline Um, so it's a really fun one to see Um, it's really hard to see because they don't publish the exact location because they want to preserve it Um, but certainly if anybody does a google search for made of harlech um, h-a-r-l-e-c-h they can see this ghostly image coming out of the the title zone that's it's just a stunning sight to to actually see um, it also helps that the uh, the pilot actually survived the accident, so um, there's a really nice, happy ending to it as well.
2: And also, as well, you can talk about it all you want now because no one's allowed out of the house to go and look at it.
0: Also true, yeah, you have to Google it now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I'm
2: dying to hear a little bit more about the
1: Bombsite Project. Can you tell us some more about Bom- it?
0: Sure, the Bombsite Project is another one of these broad definitions of conflict archaeology. Um, it doesn't necessarily take in... Uh, um, archaeology, as, as most would think of it, trowels and picks and shovels and screens. Um, but what it does do is it goes to that broader definition of conflict archaeology that the discipline's moving into. And it's an amazing bit of, uh, of kind of brute force uh, data collection and GIS mapping that anybody can access. Um, it's bombsite.org, and it takes the entire London Blitz uh, bomb census that was produced by the... Uh, um, um, the Ministry of Defense at the time uh, looking at where bombs hit, who they hit, how many casualties they were, what was the damage to houses, um, what sort of bomb was it, um, and it puts it onto a Google Earth map that you can click the little pins and find out exactly uh, what's going on. It's, it's just an incredibly dense uh, but really well-presented um, piece of work, and, uh, and there's really only a few projects out there that, that really try to tackle these huge data sets and put them into something that's easily digestible. There's older legacy books that come out, you know, six, seven hundred pages. Um, but of course, those don't give you the same level of uh, curiosity as to what happened to my hotel room in, you know, 1940. Um, yeah. That's uh, that's definitely just brings it right literally to your window.
2: The one that's really caught my eye just because of the name more than anything is The Swamp Ghost.
0: Swamp Ghost is incredible. If, if we're talking about The Maid of Harlock as sort of the UK European war emblem of conflict archaeology aviation archaeology um, swamp ghost uh, Boeing b-17 e four um, one two four four six that's its serial number uh, it's kind of the emblem of the Pacific War and it's it's equally incredible and um, Swamp Ghost is now in the, uh, what's, what's the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum. It, it changed its names, um, just a few, few months ago. So if anybody's familiar with it previously, it's, it's now same location, Fort Island, but, uh, but a different, uh, different name. And it's housed inside one of the original hangars, uh, that was actually striped and bombed by the Japanese. The glass in the actual hangar door still has bullet holes in it, uh, that you can see when you go visit. But Swamp Ghost is, as I say, it's, it's emblematic of the Pacific War. It's this eerie, um, sort of corroded, uh, bleached aircraft that, uh, that was sitting in razor grass in Papua New Guinea uh, since it went down um, during the war. And uh, and it, it sat there until it was illegally salvaged, um, but uh, but thankfully it's now through a v- variety of winding sort of ways found its way to conservation at the at the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum. Um, it's not actually called Swamp Ghost. A uh, little little bit of trivia. Uh, they're still trying to work out exactly what they they should call it. It just kind of became called Swamp Ghost because it sat in this this swamp uh, in uh, in the razor grass in Papua New Guinea. Um, that was 1972. So it only has that that laborious, long, really non-interesting serial number. Um, and uh, and it's, it's just kind of taken on this persona unto itself. Um, so it's an incredibly amazing, awesome, cool aircraft that, uh, that you'll see on every World War II book, at least inside every World War II book of the Pacific, um, because it just has that, that image of what we think of we think of the lush green uh, foliage of the Pacific War um, with this banged-up, beaten-up, corroded... Uh, um, aircraft just neatly placed there, as if somebody was building a set for, you know, Band of Brothers of the Pacific.
1: Where do I find the photographs for this? Because this actually seems really cool, and I want to see what it actually looks like. Is There a specific website that's that's devoted to it, or where, what? There is do? yeah.
0: So so Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum, um, as it sounds, pearlharboraviationmuseum.org um, They currently have it. It's undergoing static restoration, so they're trying to stop the the corrosion of the of the aluminium skin. Uh, And then they're going to leave it, last I heard uh, from them, as a static display of what it looked like in the Razorgrass just moved onto onto a a display stand. Um, So it still has its paint detail. But if you go there and then um, you go to their collections or to their support page, because they're doing a a large uh, drive to get funds to continue the conservation and and history of it, um, you can see the images of of it as it sits now in the museum, but you can also see the images of, of the uh, hangars, the, the Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941 hangars. And you can see a, an image of what it looks like um, as it sits in the uh, in the razor grass as well. Um, they have a great resource that, that walks you through how they're doing conservation and how they're doing the display and how they actually uh, worked with uh, the the government of Papua New Guinea, with Australia, with the US Air Force uh, to kind of correct this illegal salvage and, and move it into an area where it's got an educational and, and a stable future
2: if you needed an excuse to go to hawaii not that you did there's another one. Oh yeah the Fort way. island
0: uh, planned for a day and a half there that that museum is just uh, it's uh, to take a quote from indy it belongs in a museum and i think they collected all of it
1: as i'm definitely it's a bit on my list of places to go so i'm definitely i'm heading down that way as soon as i can once we're all out of lockdown but you're um you're working in conjunction with rf museum on something quite special too
0: can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the R.F. Museum, um, many will know, they they made huge splash internationally in 2010 to 2013, uh, and it's kind of quieted down in, in recent years um, because they're pre- preparing the the final display of it. Um, but uh, the R.F. Museum uh, salvaged this this Dornier Do 17Z serial number 1160, uh, and um, it's, it's a really special aircraft, uh, much like the other two, much, much like Made of Harlech uh, and much like Swamp Ghost. Um, but in this case, the, the Dornier is probably even more special than, uh, than those two. The P-38s are quite rare. There's not many around. B-17s, there's flying examples, static examples. The RAF Museum has a few. Uh, Smithsonian has a few. Um, but the Dornier's D-17, DO-17, that is the only surviving example that exists and and it is in a state uh, it, it certainly doesn't look as good as swamp coast um, but uh, but as the only surviving example uh, it's uh, it's an incredible uh, aircraft it's an incredible piece of history and then really to add to its its myth um, we think it's the, it's the 1160 we're not entirely certain yet because we can't find a data plate on it uh, but raf museum uh, thinks it's the the one that came down on the 26th of August 1940, which makes it a, a Battle of Britain uh, aircraft. Um, and it was intercepted and it was dropped uh, by RAF uh, fighter aircraft um, as it went to attack airfields in Essex. Um, landed in the in the sea and it was it was left there until it was found with some some incredible uh, sonar. Uh, and, uh, and sonar normally you have to squint a little bit and have a Rorschach test. This one you look at it and you say, yeah, absolutely, that's an aircraft. Uh, so I came into to the picture with this one, I'm not working directly with them, but I came to it because I was working on a project with the American Air Museum, which is part of the RAF Museum's uh, um, kind of annex at Duxford. And we were working on a lot of B-17s and B-24s um, and looking at conservation and, and how to uh, preserve these aluminium skinned uh, wrecks, both on site and lab. And uh, and they let us in on a little secret and said, you know, do you want to know what we're actually looking at? And, and do you want to know how we're going to do conservation and uh, and that's how I looked into it. And and we've been uh, looking at their conservation methods and, and kind of salivating over uh what they've been finding off it um for, for some time because it's just an amazing piece that comes up out of the Goodwin Sands. Uh, another one that if you if you're looking for a way to kill half an hour, an hour, um go have a look at it. Um refmuseum.org.uk, uh, it's under their cost for collection, um, and they have even more extensive details than uh than Swamp Ghost under their Dornier 17 conservation. Um, it's incredible. They built a whole new conservation uh, um, tunnel for the for the aircraft. and It's being conserved as is. Um, it's, it's just an amazing story, an amazing survivor.
2: Brilliant. Um, we've talked about some of the shiny excavations, but I'm guessing a lot of what you do goes untalked about in the press.
0: It does. Most of what I do, um, it will appear in the press. So, so some of the stuff we do um, shows up that showed up in BBC a few years ago. Um, when we were working on Sky on the Isle of Sky, looking at a B-17 there. Um, but a lot of what what I do is uh, is repatriation programs. So looking for wreck sites, we call correlative uh, work, I'm trying to find out where the historical documentation meets the actual physical site on the ground. Um, and our goal is to really identify these sites so that we can hopefully work with government agencies to excavate um, the remains of those who are still in these these wrecks. Uh, correlate them to their aircraft, which means we can work with forensics uh, to correlate them with their their actual military identity, their personal self, uh, and then repatriate them to their families for military burial. So just by the nature of the forensics, uh, a lot of that doesn't come out in the press until years after the excavation is done. And even then, we still try and keep it, not not quiet, uh, but respectful. Uh, so it doesn't tend to make a huge splash. But um, we have a lot that are missing. And in, in the U.S. alone, we have 82,000 roughly that we're looking for that are Classified as missing in action, uh, we think about 42,000 of those are actually actionable uh, cases that are not deep water losses, uh, and a good majority of those are going to be aircraft wrecks. Uh, and they they date all the way from uh, from World War One all the way through to the to the Cold War. Uh, so I've done some uh, some correlative work in Laos. I've done work in the UK, Germany, uh, North Africa, Italy, um, all over, and it, it's 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 really fulfilling work. Uh, it's Frequently tedious work, um, I've done, uh, one, one of my absolute favorites is is when the, the, the P-40 uh, Warhawk came up in, in the Sahara Desert about 2011, it was found by some um, oil engineers, oil prospectors. Uh, they didn't want to release where it was, and we were, we were tasked with trying to find out where that site was uh, for the MOD. And, uh, and it involved, we couldn't get to the Sahara, uh, so it involved literally sifting through raw satellite data, running uh, transects. Uh, virtually on a computer, and I did that for I think two and a half months or something, just back and forth, back and forth, um, and uh, and you know you you swear you're going blind and that uh, that it's not worth it, and then literally one afternoon out of nowhere, as you're just staring into the screen, going cross-eyed, this little black shape shows up and you see the aircraft and you realize that you've actually found the site and that you can turn this over and and you can kind of. Assist the field teams that are going to go out and uh and, and actually look at these sites um, with making that identification. That individual still missing, sadly. Uh, we think he walked off the wreck into the Sahara and has never been seen. Um, but we at least know where to start looking for him. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's quite. Uh, fun. Ready to pop the
2: question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. I can imagine, um so, in case we hadn't noticed uh, obviously aerospace archaeology um from sort of World War one through to early Cold War is your focus, and um, you're working hard towards standardizing methods in aviation archaeology, aren't you? What is the historic aircraft archaeology survey project?
0: I'll break it down into two parts for you, yeah, uh, so I specialize in aviation archaeology, uh, but as I say, I started in prehistory and my bread and butter, really, when um, when you look at the CRAN scheme of, of, of my research history, um, is really uh, terminal ballistics. Um, so looking at how uh, object large and small I started with with uh, projectile points, arrowheads, uh, moved into to bullets and how they impact uh, soldiers on, on the line, uh, and now looking at aircraft and really what it's looking at is how objects, how archaeological materials act when they hit physical, hard, uh, um, items. So in the case of bullets, when they hit human beings or, or other objects in the field, uh, and in the case of aircraft, when they hit the ground or, or other aircraft. Uh, and so the Historic Aircraft's Archaeological Survey Project grew out of that, that natural tendency where when you're dealing with prehistory, you're dealing with bullet scatters, you're dealing with osseous with, uh, remains, uh, especially fragmented osseous remains, bone remains. What you end up with is a huge data set that you have to control, and the only way to control it is through standardization. Uh, the human body is really nice for that because we all have a, a defined number of bones, uh, but objects are are less easy to control. And so we started looking at how we could standardize aircraft archaeology, so we could take these massive, complex marvels of engineering that are hitting objects at four, five hundred, six, seven hundred miles an hour, um, and and try and tease out the the human uh, personal elements uh, from from that story. Um, so this project looks at 16 slash 17, depending on how you want to define it. There's a Cessna that's, that's in there that uh, crashed in 2000. We threw it in because it was technically part of, of the, uh, the list. Uh, but we looked at these, uh, these aircraft, and, and we wanted to use the aircraft that were on National Trust for Scotland property as our working laboratory. It was a really nice, compact data set. And we had a really sympathetic landowner in the National Trust for Scotland who was interested in looking at modern uh, military conflict archaeology, especially aircraft. Uh, we had a really sympathetic program with RAF Duxford and the American Air Museum who were willing to give us access to their research records. Um, so we looked at it as a, as a research laboratory where we could test field methodologies and try and move the, this discipline that started with enthusiasts and military historians, avocational archaeologists in the 60s through the 90s, uh, and then really move it into and merge it with the professional discipline that uh, that we see today. Um, and, and that involved a lot of different different give and takes, um, but what I, I always highlight is how helpful uh, the avocational community is. The enthusiasts, the military historians, uh, the chap who really wants to collect all the, the different spitfires that crashed in Scotland and put them in a spreadsheet, um, they're, they get much maligned by many parts of the discipline, uh, but I have to say their, their brute force ability to crunch numbers is just amazing. Yeah. Um, and they're really yeah. wonderful to work with, uh, especially in this project. So that's what we're trying to do, is, is bring this standardization, this, this kind of collaboration uh, to the fore, and, uh, and then spread the gospel. Spread it around the rest of the world. See if anybody can tweak it to their, their part of the world. See if you know, the, uh, the, the bogs of, uh, of Eastern Europe, where we get really good survival, maybe they have a different method of, of that same standardization. Maybe there's a thing that they can teach us over there. Maybe the ice of the Arctic has a different method um, so it's, it's all about collaboration and, and developing the standardization. One way is not going to necessarily uh, define the entire discipline, um, but certainly the macro uh, definition of how we, we look at these things, uh, I think, will help usher the discipline into, uh, into a, a region where we can talk to each other.
2: I like the sound of that. Don't you, Alex? Definitely. Yeah. It's really good work, isn't it? I know. It's,
1: and the whole collaboration, how everybody works together, I think that's absolutely epic. Yeah.
0: You a little jealous, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, it, it didn't. I, it started out with a uh, some some sideways glances, shall we say, from the established aviation archaeology community, because um, I, I think there's this this tendency to see archaeologists in two light. Either you see them as the Indiana Jones who are running around, you know, collecting artifacts from uh, from war zones, perhaps punching a Nazi or two, um, but and, and, and there are certainly people out there, I've met a few people who that would literally define their, their job. Um, I've, I've worked with people who have literally taken on drug lords in South America and won. Um, but uh, the other half of the discipline is always seen as people in, in tweed jackets or sweater vests who are out there with toothpicks and, and toothbrushes uh, shoving people off behind the curtain and, and behind the, the fence and saying, you know, this is for, for archaeologists only. And what I love about Aviation archaeology. What I love about conflict archaeology is that the the interest, both on the the personal side, the family side, the national side, it's so visceral and so immediate that we we all have this interest in, in either a family story or a national story. That collaboration just seems to come naturally, and all it really takes is a bit of trust building between the two to realize that you know archaeologists may have a really good methodology, uh, but avocational uh, historians and archaeologists. Uh, may have this multi-decade collection of information about local history uh, that is really what makes that project uh, um, equally successful. Um, so collaboration is is part and parcel of it now but it certainly didn't start that way.
1: Can you tell us what the St Kilda at the War Research Project is?
0: Sure, so this is nested inside uh, the Historic Aircraft Archaeological Survey project and and the one actually, HASP actually grew out of, of St Kilda. Um, we started with St Kilda uh, it's, it's an island about 82 uh, nautical miles off the coast of Scotland. It's the, uh, the furthest most island of Scotland, it sits unprotected in North Atlantic, and it's a magical place. It's a double UNESCO World Heritage Site for natural history with its bird population um, as well as archaeological history, and, uh, and it, was, it was abandoned voluntarily by the inhabitants in the 1930s um, because the population just became so small that... That they just couldn't sustain it, and they decided that they would like to be removed. So it's an amazing survivor. It's only inhabited by an MOD a radar net that's uh, that's used for missile tests, um, and uh, and some some researchers look at the 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 sheep that live there. this really specific soy sheep, Bronze Age sheep. Um, but it also has these aircraft wrecks on it that it was used as a navigation aid during the war when they would test aircraft's engines or weapons or, or navigation proficiency because it's this massive rock in the, in the Atlantic, they would use it as a turning point. And so we looked at it as, a, as this kind of isolated, quasi-untouched field laboratory to really test out um, the early methods of, uh, of our methodology before moving to a larger uh, collection. And uh, an NTS National Trust for Scotland was wonderful. They put us up in a historic uh, site there, let us stay for a week, which it's really hard to get research access to this site, especially overnight. Um, and we looked at the the wrecks there, and there are three on the the actual uh, um, island archipelago. Uh, there's a, there's a Bow Fighter, a Bristol Bow Fighter, a short Sunderland flying boat, and then an unknown wreck site that still hasn't been defined because it's on a an ancillary island that's got one of the best. Uh, most um, protected bird populations, and, and we tried to negotiate helicopter access and drone access, and it just didn't, didn't work. We even said we'd repel uh, down the cliffs, and they looked at us sideways and said, I don't think insurance can cover that. Um, so, so the project was really focused on both the aviation side of it, what do these aircraft, what can they tell us about surviving artifact movement, um, how are our pieces moved with wind and wave and weather, um, but also the other side of that was looking at World War I, and St. Kilda, because it was this, this rock in the Atlantic, it had one of the first Marconi wireless stations uh, in the world actually put on it. Uh, and the German Kriegsmarine knew it was there, and so they actually shelled the uh, the island during the First World War. And so we were looking at shell damage, splash damage, um, and trying to map that so we had a better understanding of where the German uh, U-boat was. Cause there's a lot of funny stories that come out, like the Germans were... Uh, we're on the deck of their U-boat with a loud hailer bullhorn saying, you know, if you don't mind, would you please go up the hill? We'd like to shell you now. Um, you know, the gentleman nature of, of World War I. Uh, so it was a really interesting overlap of, of World War I, uh, combat heritage, and then World War II sort of training, um, stasis field laboratory, test platform, uh, moving all the way through to the 1950s when the MOD shows up with this radar net. And you have this Cold War presence. And so it has this really long time depth to it that we wanted to explore as part of the St. Kilda War Research Project. And that's being finished up. I'm actually writing up the last uh, part of the article in um, the next uh, month or so. And that'll go off to NTS for their uh, approval along with all the, um, the, the field archive. Uh, so that should, should come out hopefully within the next, uh, next about six, eight months, um, theoretically, in the Journal of Conflict Archaeology, fingers crossed. Um, so, if anybody is interested in that, they can certainly keep an eye out for that coming out in the JCA. Um, as I say, hopefully, uh, at least within the next year, um, fingers crossed. Um, but it's a fantastic place. You can go visit the island. You can take a day trip out there, uh, look at the heritage that's there. It's a wonderful place to visit. Um, highly recommended. A bit harder to get to than uh, than Pearl Harbor uh, or, uh, or the <laughs> Museum.
2: Brilliant. And um, I'm really excited about this last point, because um, you, another thing that you're really working hard to bring up to scratch with uh, aviation archaeology and conflict archaeology is um, preservation and legal protections. This is something you're heavily involved with in at the moment. I'm guessing there's massive variation and a multitude of different challenges.
0: There are, yeah. And, and it's something that we came across when, when I first started, my field team and I first started uh, looking at, at aviation wrecks in earnest. Um, obviously, when you're, when you're going to look at any sort of historical site, especially doing any sort of invasive work excavation, uh, you want to make sure you have permits because the last thing you need as an addendum to your report was that uh, your budget went over because you had to had to pay, you had to pay your bail. Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> it's... Um, so we started with, with this looking at legal protections, and we quickly found out that there, there was a relatively decent uh, legal protection program in place um, for aircraft wrecks, it would seem. Uh, the MOD runs a program uh, that uh, that licenses excavations. Um, and it, it came out in 1986. And the idea behind it was really to protect both aircraft, but mostly uh, to protect uh, sunken wrecks, uh, being things like Scapa Flow, major naval wrecks that were subject to diving salvage. Um, and, and part of that is because they're of interest to sport divers, but they're also of interest to salvers looking to get uh, low-alpha particle lead, uh, low-alpha particle steel that's used in, in medical imaging, these things that were pre-atomic blast, and it's really, really expensive material, and, and water being a good shield uh, can provide you with this, this material. So there's a lot of problems with people cutting up these ships, uh, especially sunken warships that are war graves. Um, tied to that, you get a rise in, in interest of aircraft when uh, the Battle of Britain film comes out, uh, in the 60s, and that kind of grows naturally as, as people delve into the subject. So by 1986, there was a big problem with wreck salvage, and they brought in this legal protection program to try and license it. The only problem is that the actual teeth in the in the legal protections weren't really there. Um, so if you didn't apply for it, if you broke your license, if you uh, excavated a site that had human remains without M.O.D. permission, uh, without identifying coroners and, and police, um, then you you would be subject to legal proceedings. But the fines and 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 the potential jail time that actually came out of it in practice was so low that it it really was like sort of a moral victory to put it in place but it didn't stop anybody who really wanted to to uh commit the offense that was it was motivated by something beyond uh following the letter of the law uh, so we've looked at, uh, at at legal protections um i've given guidance to, to english heritage through their uh, open calls I wrote the legal legal a document for National Trust for Scotland advised uh, the Welsh uh, um, Cultural Heritage uh, Organization to, to revise their um, standards, and we're, we're still working with them on that, along with local historic environment records uh, to try and, and make local policies. Um, but the, the main end result of this legal survey um, was providing recommendations both in the U.S. and the U.K., because they have the largest collections, of what the legal landscape looks like the problems with it, such as low fines or, or lack of jail time or lack of conviction or lack of prosecution at, at its very core, um, and then try and tweak them to bring them into the modern standard, because a lot of the laws that are written that protect wrecks are either pre-aircraft, so they're late 19th century, um, or they specifically exclude aircraft because aircraft at the time weren't in such large numbers as to be legally uh, um, interesting. Uh, so uh, they'll, they'll say that, uh, for instance, one of my, my favorite laws um, actually covers hovercrafts uh, but doesn't cover aircraft. Um, okay. It specifically calls out... <laughs> I've never understood why that is. I don't know anybody who's, you know, looking at that historical hovercraft and thinking that's something that should be salvaged and sold. It just doesn't seem like a good eBay sale to me, but... No. Um,
2: the shipping for a stock.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, and parts are just a nightmare. So... <laughs> It's it, that's what we're trying to work on. It's trying to tweak these these legal recommendations. It's it's extremely dry project. I'll be the first to say it. And uh, um, you know it, it helps that, uh, that both of my sisters are lawyers, and I have friends who are who are lawyers and colleagues, uh, partners who are who are lawyers in different countries. And so thankfully we could, we have a legal team that uh, that assists us in that. Um, but the but the project itself is is certainly not one that I would recommend people Google unless they're really interested in, in, in uh, uh, perhaps a good night's sleep. Um, you know what, though? A you joke,
2: thing. but it's necessary. And it's great that it actually despite the fact that it may be dry, you have taken it on.
0: It is a necessary thing. And it's something that we came across and said, you know, this doesn't exist out there. And, and our objective with it um, is really to provide the basis both for... Uh, historic cultural resource managers, um, but also for Avocational, those collaborators, those, those people that work with us, archaeologists, professionals, or otherwise, that, um, that want to look at these. You know, the last thing you want is, is to, in good faith, research a site just to find out that what you're doing contravenes the law and that you're, you're on the hook either for uh, a fine or, or perhaps a, a news story about you uh, or perhaps, uh, at, at worst, some, some jail time. Um, and, uh, and so our objective really is to be a helping hand to say, you know, this is the legal groundwork uh, that exists out there. These are the things you have to comply with. Um, you know, we really want your help. We, we value your contributions. And, and this is, you know, a, a sort of a leg up for you. You don't have to go through all of that that we went through, um, all the sleepless nights, all the, the copious pots of coffee. Um, <laughs> and so it, so it is a, a necessary, I don't want to say evil, but a necessary burden to, to, to get through for sure.
2: Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about um, conflict archaeology and aviation archaeology. I mean, we've done uh, an underwater program with Peter Campbell and people absolutely it. loved it. We, uh, we've been doing our duty to archaeology, but every time we have someone on, they bring a completely new facet of the profession to us. Um, and it really isn't just Time Team and Tony Robinson hovering over your shoulder while you look at a pointy bit of rock.
0: Well, I will say that uh, since you mentioned them, um, one of my other favorite rec sites uh, has to be Time Team. Uh, they did uh, some some A twenty six Invaders uh, years ago. Um, year escapes me, uh, but I use them frequently in, in public talks, both professionally at conferences and in public talks to history societies and the general public. Uh, so, if you're looking to to kind of see what it's all about, go back. I think it's on even on YouTube. Um, look at the A-26 invaders, uh, look at Time Team for Aviation Archaeology. It's a great open area excavation. You see the plane exposed. Um, and if you fancy getting into it yourself, uh, by all means, uh, you know, find a local Aviation Archaeology Club. Find a local Heritage Club. Propose it to them. I can tell you in Scotland alone, there were something like 5,200 wrecks during the war. Uh, obviously, some of those have been cleaned up, but there's plenty of history out there to look at. Um, so, so do get in touch with your local archaeologists, your local um, history history club, and see what's in your backyard, because the war had a very wide reach, and uh, you never know. Maybe bombsite will show you that your, your house has some history. Uh, maybe it's not on a map yet, and you can you can identify that, that wreck site that's in your back garden.
2: Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. Join us over the weekend. We've got a packed schedule. We have tomorrow, it's my turn, uh, we'll be talking about the Battle of the Somme, and why it wasn't utterly, unfortunately, pointless to fight it and uh, putting it into context in the greater war and talking about the experience of the full battle and not just the 1st of July and then on Sunday we are joined by the fantastic Tom Cullen Ed Stoppard, Simon Merrills and Julian Ovenden to talk all things nightfall so it's Knights Templar, battle scenes manic fighting, uh, what to do if you fall into 7 feet of water wearing a full suit of armour that and why Tom Cullen will never be able to eat beef carpaccio ever again and we're also joined for that by Eleanor Yaniger who's going to be our historian putting it into context and talking about the history behind the show Uh, You can now nominate History Hack for an award. If you go to britishpodcastawards.com you can nominate us for a listeners choice award Uh, You have to do your vote by the 6th of July 2020 uh, and they will announce the winner at the British Podcast Awards on Saturday the 11th of July 2020 Uh, So if you wouldn't mind we'd really appreciate it Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm
1: Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders.
0: Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise.
1: You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.